Welcome to Less Than or Equal, the podcast about pursuing equality and geekdom. I'm your host, Aline Sims, and today I'm joined by my friend Ken Gagney. Ken, how are you? Fine, thanks. How are you, Aline? I'm great. It is so exciting to be here. I know. Um, so Ken has traveled all the way from Boston to Phoenix just to do this podcast. That's right. Yeah, except he was here for a conference and we decided to get together. Um, Ken, who are you? You know, by the way, fun fact, I cannot come to Phoenix and not be on a gaming podcast. Really? Last time I was here, two and a half years ago, I was a guest on the Chatterbox video game radio show. Have you ever heard of it? I have not. It debuted about 10 years ago on KFNX 1100 as an AM radio show and a podcast. It was sponsored by the University of Advancing Technology, UAT. But when UAT pulled their funding about two years ago, they became a podcast only. So they're still running. I think they are possibly one of the longest running gaming podcasts ever. Nice. Anyway, and now I'm here and now I'm on Less Than or Equal. Upholding the tradition. Very exciting. Just I'm moving up in the world. That's right. <laughs> so who are you, Ken? Who am I? So many questions. Uh, let's see. My name is Ken Gagney and I'm probably on this podcast because I'm the host of the Polygamer podcast, which is a podcast of equality and diversity in the gaming industry. I'm also the host of the IndieCider podcast, which similarly uh, gives a platform for underdogs to be heard. It is about indie games, and I am an unboxer and Let's Player on YouTube. I'm on Twitter. I've been a member of the gaming press for, let's see, about 17 years now, because I started as a syndicated newspaper columnist back in 97, which is when the name GameBits was launched. I was writing for the Boston Herald and then for my hometown's paper. And I was a sysop on CompuServe in the Video Gaming Central forum, and then a sysop on other areas like Genie, Delphi, and Syndicom Online. And I have been writing, blogging, tweeting, shooting videos, playing games, attending E3, going back to 96. Uh, yeah, I've, I've just been playing games since the late 70s with the uh, Apple II, the Atari 2600, and it's never, unfortunately, been my vocation. I've always made my living elsewhere as a magazine editor at Computer World, and which is now ComputerWorld.com because their print, uh, print publication went out of print this past summer, so they're digital only now. But yeah, uh, I, there's so much more that I, I could just ramble all night, but I think you as the host need to corral me. You make me feel like an underachiever. No, I just compressed 35 years into three minutes. <laughs> That's all. Oh, I don't, I don't know. I, wow. So, um, all right, well, let's go through. I learned about you through our mutual friend, Steve Lubitz, on Twitter, right after you launched Polygamer. So um, let's talk about Polygamer some. What is Polygamer about? Polygamer spun off from a PAX East 2014 panel I moderated called Sex, Sexy and Sexism, Fixing Gender Inequality in Gaming. I had previously moderated a panel at PAX East 2013. It was not my first time moderating panels in general, but it was my first time doing so at PAX, for which I have Navigator to thank, N-A-V-G-T-R. They're an organization of uh, video game reviewers and press. They recruited me to moderate that panel, which introduced me to Susan Arndt, Jesse Cox, and Will Brierly, and Charles Batterby. And... Going back even before that, I had backed Anita Sarkeesian's Kickstarter for Feminist Frequency, uh, Tropes versus Women in Video Games. I don't tend to be a very critical consumer of media. I just accept it superficially, and I enjoy it for what it is, a movie, a book. 
unless I have somebody to talk to about it and really analyze it more thoroughly, like in a classroom setting or a book club, I'll just say that was a nice story and move on. Anita Sarkeesian went more in-depth in video games than I had ever done before. I would just play Double Dragon and say, oh, I have to go save my girlfriend. And then she presented this as, you know, the damsel in distress trope, where women are being brutalized as a way to give the man incentive to go on a quest. And I realized, wow, that is an entirely different way to spin it than I'd never realized before. I'd never thought about that. And there's a lot of truth to that. There's some substance to it that this is occurring and recurring throughout this industry far more than it should be. It's, it's very biased. And I appreciate that she said you can enjoy media while still being critical of it. She wasn't attacking video games. I don't think I would have been very defensive even if she was, but it really drove home the fact that you can be a gamer and still be critical of them. I thought those videos were very insightful, but what really got to me was the reception, not just of her videos, but of her. Yeah. The way that people responded to her and attacked her and made that flash game where you could beat her up. That's not cool. You know, that is not acceptable to treat anybody that way, especially in the gaming community. I have never really felt a part of an offline gaming community. Most of my friends are not gamers. And so it's really hard to find people to play games with. And when we do find these people, why would you attack them? Why would you drive them out of the industry? The whole concept of gatekeeping never occurred to me until I saw some tweets from John Scalzi who said, if you're trying to stop people from reading my books, you're hurting me and I don't need you as a fan. And it surprised me to hear that he had to come out and say this because why would anybody want to stop you from reading a book? If I like a book, I want everybody to read it. And here was just the opposite happening, where we were actually trying to keep people from playing video games. I'm like, that's that, somebody has to say something about this. Right. So since I had this experience moderating panels at PAX, I said maybe this should be the thing that I moderate next. So I submitted a proposal. I recruited some people from the industry, some whom I knew, some who I didn't. The panel was very well received. It was on a Sunday, which I thought, the last day of PAX, people are going to be starting to go home now, or they'll be hung over from the parties the previous night. I'm going to get maybe 50 people if I'm lucky. We filled the theater to capacity with over 500 people. Was it really that big? It was standing room only. Wow. Yeah. And we had so many people lined up for questions and so much discussion that had to be uh, supported and entertained that I realized that this couldn't fit into just one hour. There's more going on here than just feminism, more than can be said in just a one-hour panel, more voices than can be heard during four people getting up to a microphone for Q&A, and conversations that need to be had that can't be had at PAX because some people don't want to go to PAX. So I thought we need to create our own space to have those conversations, and I had just finished a three-year run on a podcast that I co-founded and co-hosted, and I had this free time and energy available, and I wanted to get back into podcasting, so I thought... This is the topic I'm going to tackle next. And so so it's similar to Less Than or Equal, um, except you focus more on um, topics related to gaming. Um, so why are you here? Aren't, <laughs> aren't, aren't, we, aren't we enemies? Yes, competing, we are. Competing I, for the I same audience. I loathe you. <laughs> I can't stand the sight oh. of you. 
You know, it's funny that we're not competing, but I am so glad I did not know that less than or equal even existed when I launched Polygamer, because I spent about two to three months conceiving of Polygamer and putting it together and figuring out what the structure would be and finding the background music and the narrator and the name. And I finally launched it in early July, and I put out a tweet saying, this is what I'm doing with Polygamer. And you wrote back and said, that's what I'm trying to do with less than or equal. And I said, what's that? And I went to your website, and you had just launched two weeks earlier. And if I had seen that podcast two weeks earlier, I would have just thrown my hands up in the air and said, somebody beat me to it. I quit. You're, you're already doing what I wanted to do. You obviously don't need me. So I'm so glad that, I, that you were under my radar. And because... Especially since I've seen how awesome your show is and how many more episodes you have than me. You, <laughs> I mean, you're better at this than me. And if I had known that you were going to be beating me to the punch and doing it better, <laughs> I would have been like, the world doesn't need a polygamer. Oh, that's right. No, well, and what I appreciate so much is, like, we have similar goals. And maybe this is me projecting on you, but I think you've told me that, you know, your goal, and you've said on the podcast, your goal is to be the person who goes in and asks the dumb questions so that other people don't have to. And that's kind of, I think, how I phrased it in my first episode was, I'm not afraid to ask questions, you know, as long as the person I'm talking to knows that I'm coming from a sincere place. And if I misspeak, it's because I'm an idiot and I need some education. I'm okay with doing that. But so so our goals are similar, but I think because of just like our our lives, our perspectives are different. So, you know, we're we're interviewing different types of people and we're asking different questions. And if you had the same guests on your show, it would still be new and different information for everybody. And I think that there's so much value in, um, as you said earlier tonight when we were talking, in diversifying the diversity space. So I'm really, really glad that you didn't find me until later either. Yeah, I've had some very ardent supporters without whom most of my work wouldn't be here. Andy Malloy and Laurie and Green above uh, most of all. And they both said, especially Lorian, that if you really are committed to diversity, then that means having diverse voices. You can't have just the diversity podcast. You can't have just one. You can't have the voice of diversity because that's an oxymoron. So the more opportunities you have for different voices to get heard, the more you're contributing to diversity and equality in whatever space you're working in. So Less Than or Equal and Polygamer are very similar there's only been one instance where you had a guest on the show that I wish I'd thought of her first, but I hadn't. So you beat me to it anyway. Who was it? Anna. Uh... Anna McGill. You know, before I launched my podcast, I drew up a list of 24 people I wanted to have on my show. If, it, if it's a bi-weekly show, then that would get me through the first year. And I, she wasn't really on my radar. So many more people are now, now that I've started doing the show, it's just sort of... Uh, an exponential growth of your awareness of people that you could talk to. Yep. And she's totally on my radar now, but you beat me to it. And that's fine because she wasn't on that first 24 people. And that wasn't supposed to be a prioritized list. This is just, these are people who I know, and which is a very small world. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, you have been covering a few more gaming aspects than you thought you would be. Yeah, I have. Uh, and I think I, I attribute that mostly to Brianna and also to Anna, but... So Brie was the first person I've told this story on the podcast before. You know, I I emailed her. I said, you know, I'm trying to get this thing off the ground. I was on her radar a little bit because of a blog post um, 
I'd written that she had seen. Um, she did a, a panel at, um, not WWDC, but a, a conference that they had alongside that about nine ways to stop hurting and start helping women in tech. And um, so I used that in in a blog post because I was angry at someone for something he said. Um, and so she read that. We emailed back and forth a little bit. And then I emailed her and said, hey, will you come on my show? And she said, absolutely. And, you know, I can do Friday. And so because I started, my first person was a strong proponent for feminism in the gaming space. And really, I think that was when she was really starting to ramp up as, you know, kind of taking on that role. Um, I've since had mostly gaming people, you know, because I was cold, I was basically cold calling everybody. We just, Justin and I um, made a spreadsheet. Well, we did a base camp project and I just had like this list of everyone I could find in some kind of geeky field who might want to come on. And very few people responded to that. So, you know, I think with Brie, um, with Brie coming on and then Anna coming on and then them helping me kind of network, it's kind of become more of a gaming thing than I wanted it to be. Um, so I'm hoping that over time I can kind of start steering the boat a little bit side, you know, to the side and bring more perspectives in. Cause I'd like to get like fantasy and sci-fi authors and, um, I don't even know, you know, but I want it to be more, more geeky, but I'm really, really loving being kind of in the gaming space and looking at Twitter and seeing, you know, I'm listed as a gaming person. I think that's kind of cool. Although it's not my goal, but you know, it's still a good thing to be. Yeah, it's it's well, lately it's been kind of weird, but you know, you can't let people so, take that identity right. away from you. you. They can't define that no, for you, and that's true. Well, and it's something I I still have this um, this stigma in my head of of what a gamer is, like this the the stereotypical picture of a person who plays games a lot and. It's not a gendered thing in my head, but it's a like amount of time you spend and kind of the types of games you play and the mode, you know, I play on easy mode. I can't be a gamer. And I'm still kind of struggling with letting go of that. Hmm. So we'll see. I've always thought of myself as a gamer, but I think the kind of gamer that I am has changed over the years. When I was a kid, I would probably have been a hardcore gamer pouring 80 hours into Final Fantasy IV to find every single weapon and spoon that I could. Nowadays, a game that takes more than 12 hours to finish just isn't in me because I have so many jobs. I have a full-time day job. I have a teaching job at night. I'm a freelance writer, and I just don't have time to put 80 hours into a single game. So I I don't want to say I'm a casual gamer, but I think there's something in between casual and hardcore. Well, and I think we're seeing that more and more, you know, as... as kind of this generation who grew up with pop or started growing up with games is growing up and is comprised of adults. You know, I think we see that more the, the somewhere between casual and, and intense gamer. Um, and I think that that's a space that needs more representation and exploration too. It's just, it's just like in politics where we have, you know, the left and the right, but most of America is in the middle. Right. And we don't really have any politicians that represent that. They're playing to the extremes by opposing themselves opposite their, you know, their fellow politicians. They want to set themselves up as the anti-this or the pro-that. And same thing with gaming where, you know, 
the games that I played as a kid that were hardcore, those same games, I don't think they are hardcore anymore, like Pac-Man. I have three older brothers, and the oldest brother could play Pac-Man blindfolded because he had memorized all the patterns. That is hardcore. Yeah, that is. And nowadays, Pac-Man is like the 99-cent game you put on your iPad for your son to play. And it's a casual game. And you go off and play the hardcore games like Halo or Gears of War. And so the it's not that the, I, the games have changed over the years. And in some ways, they've kind of turned me off. But also the definition has changed. Yeah, I agree. I mean, I, I took about six years off from gaming where I, I touched them very little. And this was after a six-year stint as a game reviewer where I was reviewing a different game every single week for six years that was over 300 columns that i wrote every monday on page b1 in the paper how do you do that i mean that's that's a huge wow (laughs) yeah and in hindsight i was doing that while in college too and i'm trying to figure out how did i do that maybe that explains the three classes i failed Uh, but no i i don't know how i did it but after that this was right after 9 11 and right after the economy tanked in 2001 and it was not a good time to be in print and the editor-in-chief for the paper I've worked for, uh, a new editor came in, and he had his own vision for the newspaper, and he laid off pretty much everybody, including me. At that point, it was, there was just no opportunity for me to get back into the print business because it was just such a bad time for that industry. At that point, I kind of just stopped playing games because that's when games like Grand Theft Auto were getting really popular, and I could see how violent they were, and that just did not appeal to me. So the original Xbox, I really didn't enjoy it that much. The PlayStation 2, I enjoyed a lot, but not really the mainstream games that people were playing. And it wasn't until the Wii came out that I really started getting back into gaming. Same thing that happened with Anita Sarkeesian. She said this, this demonstrated that games could be for everybody. What I really like about games is when they either have a really good story to tell or they're doing something I've never seen before. You know, there are so many games that are over the shoulder, running around, hiding behind boxes and crates and shooting things. And I'm tired of that. I've done that, and I don't need to do it again. That's everywhere. It's the definition of a hardcore game. Right. But the Wii was doing things I'd never seen before, and it was really cool. And that really got me back into games. And now I I like games that are telling good stories. I often point to Silent Hill Shattered Memories for the Wii U as a game that I really, really dug. There was no combat whatsoever, and that turned some people off. But it's also the most scared I've ever been playing a game as an adult. And the fact that it could have that emotional response in me was really significant to me. Have you played The Last of Us? I've not. I skipped the PS3. I do have a PS4, but I haven't gotten to that game yet. So I I talk about it since I've been so gaming focused on the podcast lately. I've talked about it, but I haven't really talked about why I like The Last of Us so much. But it's for those reasons that you're talking about. So, you know, we have a Wii, not a Wii U. We have a Wii, a PS, and a PS3. I guess that's it. And then, you know, like iPads and computers. And um, The Last of Us has kind of been my gateway into starting to play games again. You know, because we'd have, you know, Mario Kart on the Wii and invite friends over and play, and that was fun, whatever. But, you know, that was about the extent of it. But The Last of Us is, I mean, it's a pretty long game. I think it's a 40-hour game. Um, so it's long for me, just coming into gaming. And it's kind of like a first-person shooter, which isn't really my bag. But um, I loved the story because 
at the beginning, it it starts with a strong female character. And it showcases, like, the evolution of a relationship between a man and a child and, like, a, a, a father-daughter type of metamorphosis from, like, sorry if I'm spoiling this, but, like, like just this this guy who really takes on a burden reluctantly into, like, caring for someone that he didn't necessarily know he would start caring for. And there's a lot of, like, nuance to it. And I think it's also listening to the Incomparable podcast that they did on it. I think it's a different experience based on how you play the game. So I'm an explorer. I I, I go in all the nooks and crannies, and I, I examine everything I pick up. And it sounds like it's a different gameplay for someone like me who does that versus the person who's just, like, trying to clear a level. And that's really kind of brought me back into, like, oh, there are games out there telling really good stories. And, you know, like right now I'm playing Child of Light on the PS3 and it's just cute and I like the art style and it's, you know, kind of goes to that, like, I've never played Dungeons and Dragons, but just kind of that kind of gameplay that um, I'm really enjoying it and I'm really liking, like, coming back into the space for those good stories. I think that's the same reason that the original Walking Dead from Telltale Games was so popular back in 2012. At its core, it's essentially just a choose-your-own-adventure game, which is not what you would expect from a zombie survival horror, if that's what you want to call it. You expect Resident Evil. But it tells such a good story, and the characters are so substantial that that resonated with people, and it won tons of awards. You know, same thing with Journey. I've had people, the Chatterbox video game radio show that I mentioned earlier, the hosts of that show feel that this is not a game and this is not what we should be putting forward as demonstrative of what our industry is capable of producing because it's not a game. I loved Journey. I do too. It was a work of art. I mean, video games are art. I'm not going to have that argument because they are. not Roger Ebert. No. Yeah. But I, I think some games exemplify that nature more than others. And I think Journey is such a game. Yeah, it's. There are some scenes where, you know, I play and I just stop, and I like go in a circle because it's just, it's beautiful. And and one of my favorite things to do in Journey is to run to the edges of the map because the wind pushes you. So it's sand dunes, and then you go to the edge, and they don't, you know, obviously they haven't finished that part of the game it's not part of the game and so they have this wind to push you and so I like to go on top of the sand dunes as far as I can go and then like glide down the sand dunes with the wind pushing me and you know that's I think that's the beauty of journey is you can do whatever you want to do but I finally got my white robes so I'm excited no I haven't played the last of us but I am here in Phoenix to attend a conference and yesterday I couldn't help but laugh when one of the presenters as he was getting ready for a session was looking around at the podium around his laptop and he was saying, is there a clicker? Where's the clicker? Oh, no. <laughs> and I'm like, I know what that means. <laughs> it doesn't mean what you think it means. <laughs> so, okay, we derailed from Polygamer. It was a good derail, but I, I'd like to go back to Polygamer. Is there more to say? I think so. Okay, you need to guide me. Okay, what have you learned? What have I learned? Gosh, uh, I've learned that getting people to listen to a podcast about really serious issues and what is supposed to be a fun industry can be very hard to do. Yes. I have not gotten a ton of feedback about Polygamer. The 
analytics show that more people are listening than I thought, but they're not necessarily responding. So I don't know if that indicates that I need to focus more on people like Lesson or Equal does. I think that's one of the differences between our shows is when I drew up that spreadsheet of 24 people, I had a column for issue and what would this person be talking about, like racism, ageism, ableism, feminism. And sometimes I identify the issue first, and then I go and find somebody who's knowledgeable on that subject. So I'm not necessarily speaking about what the person is doing or what the person is known for. I'm speaking about what the person knows. And maybe that's a little bit too abstract. I know that one of the next two episodes of Polygamer will be focusing on a Let's Player, a popular YouTube personality who has a huge following on Twitter and Facebook and a successful Patreon. And I want to talk to her, or I want her on the show to talk about how she has accomplished so much and what issues she's faced along the way. So that will be an instance where I'm focusing on the person rather than the idea. And it'll be interesting to see if that episode produces more feedback or resonates more with the listeners. I don't know. So you and I have emailed back and forth and... Um, Mostly vicious of, snipes at each other. Yes, because that's how we roll. Right. This this adversarial relationship we have, which I think is apparent. There can be only one. Yes. Um, so anyway, we've emailed back and forth about, you know, ch- just talking about what the differences between our shows are. And I think that that's one that we haven't necessarily discussed is that, that you're more topic focused where I'm more people focused. Mm-hmm. But I think that, um, that that's an interesting, an interesting difference between our shows, but I've really loved the topical nature of Polygamer. Um, I love the episode you did with um, Susan and Russ for for Take This, um, which is a um, well. Maybe I should let you. Will you tell people? Sure. So Susan Arndt is the only person who has been on both of the Paxi's panels that I've moderated. She is currently the managing editor of Joystick.com and the co-founder with her husband Russ Pitts, co-founder of Polygon.com of Take This, which is a nonprofit that helps raise awareness of mental health issues in the gaming industry. Susan and Russ are such story journalists that I could have had them on the show to talk about any number of journalistic issues, especially when Gamergate was just emerging. But I really wanted to focus on the mental health aspect of games because that was at the core of my launching of the other podcast, IndieCider, and it was not yet a topic I'd approached on Polygamer. So I had the two of them on the show, and it was the first audio-only episode of Polygamer because formerly there was a video edition on YouTube and I eliminated that edition to focus on an audio edition which gave me a lot more flexibility in the kinds of guess I would approach and when and where we would record. This was the first time I'd edited this was the first time I'd recorded an episode of Polygamer during the middle of the workday. So I have a day job and Russ and Susan were available say noon to one. So I recorded that interview during my lunch break. What I did not take into account is that you can't spend an hour talking about mental health and depression and suicide and then immediately snap back into your day job. That was, in my opinion, the heaviest episode of Polygamer that I've recorded so far. And after I was done with that show, I was just drained and I was so quiet for the rest of the day. And even though I'd already used up my one hour lunch break, I just had to go sit in this quiet room for a little while. And just sort of collect myself and think about everything that had just happened. So that was a really important episode. And I was really glad that we had that. And it exemplifies to me the sorts of things that I want Polygamer to be talking about. I don't want them all to be quite so dark. 
Yeah. And it wasn't necessarily dark. It was encouraging. It, it was us saying that, yes, people do have mental health issues, and that's okay. You don't need to be ashamed of it. We can talk about this, and we can fix these things, and there are people who can help you, and there are ways to help yourself. And that was a very uplifting message. But still, just the fact that we were talking about this, which is the point of Take This, which is to bring these topics out into the light. It's not a topic that we talk about very often, and it's not one that we've yet inured ourselves to. We're not accustomed to talking about these things. And that was what I found so challenging for me, was that this is not something that is a part of my daily life. Yeah, and it's one of my favorite episodes. So, like... I come away from every episode of Polygamer, and I think, wow, that was excellent. Um, but I really, I really appreciated that episode because one, I really appreciate what Susan and Russ are doing with Take This. I think that it is very important. I think that mental health issues are so stigmatized in our in our society, and like even in gaming culture, that that they need to be discussed and. I, I love that you did that. I love that you recognized the need for that and that you decided to take that on. Um, but I mean, there, are, I mean, really it's, it's a good show. If you, if y'all don't listen to Polygamer, it really is a good show. I, I enjoy it every time I listen to it. Well, thank you. And I understand that that episode also had a significance to you, especially in my efforts to get you to come to Boston. <laughs> So Ken really wants me to come to Boston for PAX East. So does Steve Lubitz and, Stu- and Brianna mm-hmm. and Maddie Myers. Everybody wants you to <laughs> oh, come I'm to Boston. Sure. Yes, um, I, I may have been making up some of that, but I think, I think a little. If, if they little. knew you, they would want you to come to Boston. <laughs> so, so I have a hard time at conventions. So I've been to San Diego Comic Con a couple of times. Phoenix Comic Con is pretty big, um, and I get overwhelmed i um i have add so my brain doesn't process things well so it like when you're out on the convention floor and there are a bunch of people walking and i don't like being touched so you know i'm like trying to ball up so that people aren't brushing up against me and there's all the sound and there's all the noises and who i want to look at this thing and i want to talk to this person and know that you know and it just i get really overstimulated and um, so the first thing I do when I go to a convention, especially if I haven't been there before, is I try to stake out quiet places where I can just go and relax. And, um, you know, San Diego Comic Con, as it progressed, it got harder and harder to do that as it got bigger and bigger and, and even more popular. Phoenix Comic Con's the same way. And um, what Susan and Russ were talking about in that episode of Polygamer is their AFK rooms where um, it's just a quiet space where people can go and relax for a little bit. If they're in um, some kind of crisis, Um, they were talking about someone um, went to an AFK room at PAX Prime, I don't remember, somewhere. And one of the PAX shows, they went to the AFK room because they have mental health professionals and someone brought their friend in and they helped, you know, their friend get help for depression, like contemplating suicide. Um, so yeah, I'm really excited that, you know, at the prospect of like, I know at PAX East, assuming they're back there this year, it'll be a place where I can just go for 15 minutes and breathe and get away and then, you know, go back to it. They have since announced that the AFK room will be at every PAX. Nice. 
I think that's so important. And what I think is like, it's nice to have that quiet space. Right. But what I really appreciate is that they actually have mental health professionals, certified counselors there to help people. And I just think that is so amazing. Like I just, I would have never thought to do that. And I'm so glad that they did. Yeah. That's one of my goals with Polygamer is to bring to, to light issues that you never would have thought of. Like that would not have occurred to me. Like I didn't know this was a thing. And that's true for so many people that aren't as engaged in the online community as you and I are. You and I are on Twitter every single day. And we are super engaged with all these people who are also on Twitter every day. I don't have any evidence to back this up, but I'm going to say most gamers aren't on Twitter. You know, most gamers, they go to GameStop or Walmart or Target and they buy their games and they bring them home and they play them. And that's the extent of their relationship with this medium. They don't know who Brianna Wu or Anna McGill or Russ Pitts or Susan Arndt are. They don't know what take this is. They don't go to PAX because they don't live in one of the three cities in the United States that have it. And they're not willing to travel and spend all that money to go play games that they could play at home in the quiet of their own home. So they don't know what these issues are and they don't realize that this is a thing. They don't know that there are issues of equality and diversity in gaming. And they don't understand why there are issues when they find out that there are when they read these articles on the front page of the New York Times about all these uh, attacks and assaults and threats that are going on, they don't understand why aren't people just playing games. And that's a valid question. But the fact is that there is a lot more to this industry and to this community than just the software that we're playing. There are a lot of people here, and we all have different voices, and we all have different issues. And there are opportunities in this industry to ameliorate or to exacerbate those issues. And we need to make sure it's more of the former and less of the latter. Yeah, I totally agree. Well, and some of what's, what's so frustrating right now in this, this climate we have is I feel like we're on, we're like this, this great awakening in gaming where it's like, okay, I don't, I don't like this game or I don't like this aspect of this game. That doesn't mean I don't like games. That doesn't mean I hate you for playing. That doesn't mean I hate the game. I just don't like this aspect. And hey, maybe could we have a game that does something different that doesn't have this component to it? And I feel like, um, you know, some of those people that that you're talking about who just who just play their games, they get their perspective from it, they walk away, and that's the end of it. I think that that feels really threatening. Like I know when people challenge my perspectives, sometimes I'm like very defensive about it. And I think that's a lot of what we're seeing right now is like, no, this is my perspective. It's, it's a perfectly valid perspective. I don't need to think about yours because it doesn't matter to me. And I think that's what Polygamer is, is helping to do is like, okay, here are these different perspectives here, are different ways we can, we can do this thing. I like, you know, you've had, um, you've had a sociologist on, you've had, um, a, a game developer who wrote a book on diversity in, in games. And I think that that's really cool. I think that's really important. Well, I think, I think two of the most important qualities that you can have not only as a human being, but also as a podcast host, are curiosity and ignorance. Those two things kind of go hand in hand because you have to admit that there's something that you don't know 
in order to be curious about it and to learn about it. And that is one of the reasons I created Polygamer, is a space where I can be curious and ignorant. And that's why Matt Kahn was the very first guest on my show. Matt is one of the original founders of GamerX, an annual video game convention in San Francisco for gay gamers. I have been a backer of GamerX all three years that it has been on Kickstarter. When it was first announced on Kickstarter, I backed it because I felt like the commonly accepted res uh, response to this event, at least among my peers, was, this is great. We need more opportunities for these voices to be heard. We need to create a safe space for them. Let's do it. And so I backed this event. But privately, I felt that my actual initial reaction to this event was, I don't get it. Why have a convention for gay gamers? What is the correlation between gay and being a gamer? Why not have a convention for Jewish gamers or vegetarian gamers? It, do it doesn't make any sense. Just be a gamer and your orientation doesn't matter. So I brought Matt on and very often before we actually start recording, I'll tell my guests, look, I am a straight, white, cisgendered male. I am liberal. I'm open-minded. I'm willing to change my mind, but I can't change my background, which is very homogenous. And so when I ask you these questions, it's not to be threatening. It is because I'm trying to relieve myself of this ignorance. I need your help to understand, and I'm coming from a place of good intentions. You know, I had one guest on the show who, when I gave her that spiel, she said, Ken, if I didn't believe you were coming from a place of good intentions, I wouldn't be on this show. You already, you, you already have me on your side. Let's talk. Somebody else who I had on the show, when I told him I was coming from a place of good intentions, he just said, the road to hell is paved with good intentions. I'm like, great, that's not intimidating. <laughs> but I think he was just being funny because we had a great podcast anyway. And I got to ask Matt Kahn this question, why be gay and have a gaming convention? What's the point? And he didn't get mad at me, of course not. He just said, that's a good question. Here's why. And I understand now because he was able to explain that when they go to mainstream conventions, they don't always feel safe or welcome. And sometimes, you know, you want to hang out with company of people who are like you and who get it. You know, same reason why the Sugar Gamers exist in Chicago. That's a community of primarily female gamers. You just want to hang out with other women. You don't want to worry about getting hit on by guys. Same reason why Tifa Robles created the Lady Planewalker Society out in Seattle, so that other women can have a community to play Magic the Gathering without getting talked down to by guys. You just want to hang out with people who are like you and who get it. And that's not segregation. That's not being exclusive, because... Even these primarily female gaming communities allow men into them. If I wanted to go to Gamer X as a straight white cisgendered male, they would let me. There's nothing to stop me. I saw somebody on Twitter who was having a discussion with Maddie Myers, and he was saying how he felt excluded from a lot of PAX panels who were all because the panels were all about minorities and feminism. And I was like, how are you excluded from that? What's stopping you from coming? I moderated a panel on feminism as a straight white guy. I was not excluded from my own panel. You can go to any one of these panels you want to. If they don't appeal to you, that's fine. But that's not the same as being excluded. I mean, with hundreds, literally hundreds of panels being held at every PAX, not every single one is going to be for you. Right. Because PAX isn't about you. PAX is about everybody. Games are for everybody. And just because we have diversity doesn't mean that you're being excluded. 
Well, and I think that's that's hard to recognize. Like, if I'm not who this is directed for, again, it's going to feel kind of weird and a little bit, you know, squidgy, and maybe I don't want to do that. Um, I would argue that maybe you need to do that because you feel that way, but... Yeah, you need to get outside your comfort zone. And maybe these gamers who feel this way, maybe they just need to get old and jaded like me. I mean, I said that I need games to be doing new things and telling new stories. And I talked about how the Wii U rectified the issue of gameplay, that gameplay was getting stale, and then the Wii U came along and fixed it. But then there's also the story component. And I feel like I've seen enough games where the guy goes on a quest to save or avenge the woman. You know, we need more diversity in stories, and that means getting more diverse people to tell their stories. Mm -hmm. We need LGBTQ developers and characters in games. I'm so looking forward to Matt Kahn's game Read Only Memories from Midboss Games, which has a diverse cast. Same thing with Treachery and Beatdown City by Sean Alexander Allen, because these are going to be games that are telling stories that I haven't seen before. And I'm so tired of the stories that I have seen. I mean, I like them, and they're familiar to me, and I'm comfortable with them. I will always play The Legend of Zelda, even though every single Zelda game is the same. Although I would love it if the next Zelda game did have a female protagonist. Yeah. You know, like like we some people have been wanting for years, and some people have even suspected for years. That hasn't happened yet. I would love to see it. And if they don't do that, I'm still going to play it, because Zelda is awesome. But it's also time to mix things up, which actually brings up a slight tangent. So when the trailer for the new Zelda game came out, some people thought that that Link character looked a little bit effeminate or might be a female character. They seemed actually excited about that rather than worried. And so I'm, I wonder if that is indicative of what Nintendo gamers are like. And if we could get demographics on people who self-identify as gamer gators, I wonder what their consoles would be. Like, That's what- a really interesting thought yeah are gamer gators playing the wii u are they playing ps4 xbox one pc i i I don't know i don't know who these gamers are but i for something in me feels like people who are really into the legend of zelda and metroid probably aren't the ones making all these harassing statements and again there's no evidence for me to be making that statement there's nothing backing that up but it just seems like and again, I am playing into stereotypes here. Maybe this is the definition of gamer that Lee Alexander is saying is dead. And maybe I'm just trying to keep this dead corpse of a definition alive for reasons that even I don't understand. But I feel like I'm not saying that people who play Xbox One and PS4 are gamer gators. Let me make clear that I'm right. the correlation does not go the other way. I have nothing against those games or the people who play them. But I'm, I'm, I do wonder what the demographics are of people who self-identify as gamer gators. Just a, a random thought that there are more important things to know about people who are making these statements. Well, but I think that that's, that's interesting. And I wonder if there, I mean, there's no, I don't know, there's no reliable way to do that, I guess. Nope. You know, here's a Google document or a survey. and Well, there was a survey by Jennifer Alloway out in Germany who was trying to conduct some studies on the demographics of characters in games, like have you ever wanted to play as a female gamer or uh, a character or a character opposite your own gender. And that survey got slammed with false data from people who didn't want her examining issues of equality and diversity, which is such a shame. They're trying to silence anybody who is exploring these issues. 
I just don't, I just don't, I just don't get it because as you've said, as I've said on previous episodes, the only thing that's going to happen if you have more diverse people creating games is that you have more diverse games like Call of Duty, GTA, those games aren't going to go away. Mario's not going away. Zelda's not going away. But there are probably stories that we've never even considered that someone has floating in their head that would make a really excellent game, but maybe they're too afraid to enter the industry. Or maybe they were chased out of the industry. And it just infuriates me. Well, you know, if you are a professional in the industry, then you might have some grounds to have these qualms. Because this is something that I was made aware of in my interview with Hadija Marodinkov on Polygamer. And she pointed out the simple math that there are only so many spots for employees in this industry. There are only so many game developers being hired at Electronic Arts or Microsoft or Ubisoft. And if all of those people are white males and we want to increase the diversity, then chances are Ubisoft isn't suddenly just going to expand their budget and double their staff size. Chances are that the next time a white person leaves that position that they'll want to hire somebody with a more diverse background. So in the long run, there will be fewer white people working in that job, and that means fewer jobs for whites. So maybe maybe that can be seen as threatening. I don't know. But again, you even at that point, you, you have to be breaking it down into an us-versus-them dichotomy mm-hmm. to feel threatened like that. Right. I would rather, you know get that diversity into the game place because it's going to make for different kinds of games, not better games. I, I don't think that, you know, read-only memories is going to be better than Halo because it's incomparable. Right. You're playing those games for completely different reasons, and they're both perfectly valid, and they're both perfectly fun. But I, I, I can see why some people would feel threatened, but I don't think the people who are feeling threatened are the ones who are looking for jobs in the industry. Yeah. I, well, I've seen a few few people in the industry on Twitter who were like, you know, things are fine. We don't need to change anything. It's all right. Um, and maybe it's probably a lot of confirmation bias because of the people I follow. You know, I follow obviously Anna and Brianna who have been past guests and, you know, they're all for increasing diversity. But it seems like there's the majority of the people in gaming and game creation I know do want more diverse people. Mm. And, you know, who's not to say, I, and I think this is kind of where I look at the indie developers too, you know, the, the non AAA studios as kind of leading this charge, people like Brie who are um, founding game studios or um, past guest Anna and also a future guest Anna, Um, We have a podcast lined up for um, the one after this one will be with Anna. Um, She she successfully pitched a game and is going to start creating it very, very soon. She's so exciting, isn't it? She's going to start accepting resumes. And she's you know, she's tweeted about how this game is going to have diversity in the game. And I am so excited to look at these indie studios and say, all right, where are you going? Because I think this is where we currently are and will continue to see the trend, in my opinion, improving. It's going to be awesome. (laughs) I'm looking forward to seeing what games we're coming out with next. Yeah. 
So, all right, we've talked about games. We've talked about podcasting. Mm-hmm. Um, you're also a pretty big reader, right? Reader? Reader. Sure. You like books? I like books. You I'm like, a big fan of books. What, what books do you like? What books do I like? Well, you know, I talked about being curious. When I was a kid and my older brother was playing Pac-Man Blindfolded, you know, That's just crazy to me. Yeah, and Qbert too. Wow. <clears throat> My brothers and I, we all grew up with Apple computers and video games. And then when all three of them went to college, they put away the games and they switched to Windows. And I'm the only one who didn't really grow up. I stuck with the Apple brand and I kept playing video games. And it's so strange that, you know, the things that I thought was fun as a kid, like water parks, are still so much fun. And my adults are, my brothers are like, no, we have to like watch baseball and play fantasy football. And I'm like, what happened to you? <laughs> We used to have so much in common. You used to be, we were all kids together. Why'd you grow up? Why can't you be more like Peter Pan? Anyway. I'm sorry. uh, But the two things that really informed who I became as a kid were my library card and my Apple II because my parents just put so much time and energy into my three older brothers that by the time I came along, they were exhausted. And they just said, they said, go entertain yourself. Here, here's a library card and Apple II. Have fun. And 18 years later, I went to college, and that was it. I and was raised by computers. Pretty much, yeah. Ugh. yeah, Just like that kid in Broken Age. Uh, but, yeah, I grew up reading all sorts of fantasy and fiction. Uh, the books of R.A. Salvatore were a huge influence on me because uh, we grew up in the same uh, community. And my father was walking through the mall one day when this local author was doing a book signing of his first book ever the crystal shard and my dad said oh i know ken likes dungeons and dragons i'll buy him this book that's set in that world so he gave it to me and i was only about eight years old at the time and i couldn't read that book because it was just too hard for me at eight so i put it away and two years later i read it again or i tried it again and it was awesome so i said i want to buy every book with this character in it and by that point it was a trilogy and then I ran out of those books, and I'm like, I want to buy every book by this author. So I read everything by R.S. Salvatore, and then I thought, I want to read everything set in the world Dungeon Dragon. So I bought everything TSR published into the Forgotten Realms. And then I'm like, I want to read everything that's fantasy. And I just kept getting bigger and bigger because I just kept running out. My world kept being too small to encompass all my reading. And I'd be reading like a book a day. I just loved it. So I, I was reading fantasy, and I was reading Hardy Boys, and just anything I can get my hands on. Uh, That stayed true all the way through college, reading fantasy. After college, I switched to science fiction, uh, Star Trek novels, Star Wars. Now I read uh, not too much fantasy, a lot of sci-fi. Love John Scalzi. Mm -hmm. He is one author who is consistently above average. Yeah, I agree. I mean, I don't think he's the perfect writer. I think he likes his deus ex machina a little bit too much. But I love his books. I love red shirts. And I love when he stands up for equality and diversity, which he has done multiple times on his blog and on Twitter. Yep. You know, he is an ally. He absolutely is. I, I've actually asked him to come on the show, but um, my pleas have <laughs> gone, gone unanswered. But. I, I didn't go to his book signing in Boston recently because it was the same night as AlterConf, which we've both talked about on this show. Uh, but even though I was eager to meet him, I realized that Three years ago, I had to move for the first time in 10 years, and I had to box up 600 novels and move them, and I realized how heavy books are. 
They are. Yeah. And after that move, I stopped buying books. And uh, Amazon lost me as a customer because now I go back to the library like I did as a kid. And everything I want to read, I just get from the library. So even though I've read all of John Scalzi's books, I don't own any. And like, what would he have signed for me? <laughs> I don't, I'm like, hi, Mr. Scalzi. I've never bought one of your books. <laughs> but he, I really like reading them. And he's like, thanks. Why are you here? Go away. So, wait, can I tell a John Scalzi story really Please. Fast? So, he generally goes to Phoenix Comic Con, um, and he is friends with Joel Watson, who does, um, why can I not think of it? Oh, uh, well, Joel Watson has, has a webcomic, and they are friends, and um, I... There was a shirt of Joel's that I wanted to buy. And so, you know, I did, we always do this, like, scope out the convention floor, pick out what you maybe want to buy, and then, you know, go back and get it later. And so I went back to get the shirt I wanted. Yes, hijinks ensue. Ken wins. Um, So John Scalzi's at Joel's booth. And at that point, I actually had not read any of his books. And so I looked at him and I gave him a winning smile and said, I really like following you on Twitter. And he said, thank you very much. So that was nice. But since I have read many of his novels. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, that's my John Scalzi story. Also, Old Man's War. That's another one of my oh, favorites. That's one of my favorite books of like all time. I just, I don't love every book in that series, but I, I, it was such a great novel. So anyway, so yes, I am a reader. Why do you ask? (laughs) Well, I was wondering if you've read any graphic novels lately. Graphic novels? I don't think so. I think I read one for a book club that I'm in that I founded with a few friends. Uh, We all used to work at the same magazine and we wanted to stay in touch. Uh, But generally not too many graphic novels. I do have a couple of blogs about books. One is called wordbits.net and I haven't updated it all that much. I was writing for it more often when I was pursuing my master's degree in publishing. And I now teach at the school where I got my grad degree. And there is a class blog where my students actually host a podcast about electronic publishing, online publishing. So they interview ebook authors, web designers, database managers, any aspect of online publishing, really. That website is called thepubcast.org. My students named it without doing any research, because if they had, they would have realized that there are several podcasts on that subject all about beer. With that name, I mean. Yeah, yep. So the pubcast is supposed to be about publishing, and since I don't have students year-round, such as during the summer, I actually take over as the host of that podcast when school is out for the summer. So I occasionally interview people about electronic publishing. I've interviewed uh, Lorian Green, and I have an interview coming up with Molly Ostertag of Strong Female Protagonist which is, I think, one of our favorite web comics that we yes. share. Yes. Um, that is a graphic novel that I have not read recently, but I did buy three copies of Strong Female Protagonist when Molly was at uh, MICE, which is the Massachusetts Independent Comics Exhibit in Boston just uh, last month in October. Yeah. So I got to meet her, and it wasn't until I actually took my selfie with Molly and I was looking at the picture later that I realized, oh my God, you're so young. She's 22. She just finished college this year. And like as soon as she finished college, she and her writer, Brennan Lee Mulligan, went on Kickstarter and asked for like a few thousand, got tens of thousands for a webcomic that they had launched two years ago. So that must have been when they were sophomores in college. And I'm like, oh, my God, you're so talented. You're doing so much with your life. And here I am. And I'm a failure. So, yes. Yeah. yeah. You're kids the worst, these days with, with all their resources. Yeah. I know. I know. I don't know why I bother. But here I am. <laughs> 
I love strong female protagonists. I don't think I've actually talked about it on the podcast at all. So it's it's this webcomic done by Molly and Brennan, and it basically features a young female superhero um, who has given up her superhero-ness and is trying to live her life and kind of, you know, what ensues with that. And it's it's deep. Mm-hmm. I mean, it gets really deep really, really fast. And I was so happy that I could back the Kickstarter and actually get, like, a physical book. And since you've met Molly, um, you've actually kind of been in Strong Female Protagonist. That's right. This is actually not through meeting her, but from backing the Kickstarter. I was oh, such a huge fan of the Kickstarter oh, okay. that I backed it at the level that you get to make a cameo nice. in the comic. And I was actually, of the like 19 people who backed at that level, I was the first one that they drew into the comic. So they knew that, oh, they asked me all these questions about myself, like what I like, what I do. And I said, oh, well, I, I, I teach at, at the college level and I like apples and blah, blah, blah. So they said, well, we, we need our strong female protagonist to have a academic advisor at her college. We'll make that Ken because he works at a college. And they, they got me mostly accurate. They got my likeness right, not necessarily my personality, because I appeared on three pages of the comic, and they only published one page at a time. The first page, without the context of the second and the third page, my character looks like a psychopath. Or sounds like one. And if you read the comics on that page, they were saying, Molly, stay away from this guy. He's a creep. Something's wrong with this guy. Oh, no. And so Molly actually had to wade into the comics and say, just to let everybody know, Ken is actually cool IRL. He only lent us his likeness for this comic, not his actual personality. And they're like, oh, okay. We guess Ken is cool, but the one in this comic is a creep. Wow. So <laughs> I'm glad they cleared that up. And they didn't actually use my real name, just in case somebody wanted to Google me and say, wow, this Ken guy really is a psychopath. Um, but I guess I just outed myself. So yeah, I am in a strong female protagonist. So um, what indie games are you, are you into right now? The game I'm most looking forward to right now is Bird Story. Comes out this week, November 7th, from the same developer as To the Moon. Uh, which is a, a lovely game talking about plot. Uh, that is a game with, rich with one. And uh, Bird Story is set in the same universe, but as far as I understand, it doesn't actually use any words. There's no language. And so I was actually talking to one mom gamer who wants to introduce her daughter to this game because uh, the daughter, she loves games that tell stories, but she, her language skills aren't the best. And sometimes she falls a little behind in following the text. So if she can play a game that has a story but no text that might be something really engaging for her Uh, so to the moon and bird story check those out i'm playing shadowgate which i featured on a let's play and my indie cider podcast which is a reimagining of the classic 1987 macintosh point and click adventure game just came out in 2014 i backed it on kickstarter and I had the opportunity to interview one of the original developers from like 30 years ago, which was fascinating because he is still involved with the reimagining. Oh, nice. Yeah, the, the two co-founders, Dave Marsh and Carl Ruloffs, they're the ones who went on Kickstarter and said, we want to bring our classic franchise back from the dead and reimagine it. And to talk to somebody who made the game that I was playing when I was like a little kid waking up on a Saturday morning to run downstairs in my pajamas and play this rented game that we got from Rent-A-Video or whatever... It was awesome. 
I mean, these people are still around. It's living history, and to get that recorded was great. So that interview is on my YouTube channel and will be on an, in an upcoming issue of Juiced.gs, which is a quarterly print magazine I publish. Uh, other indie games. Uh, just finished playing some of the puzzle game Cube Cube Cube, spelled QBQBQB. And uh, looking forward to games like Galaxy and uh, This War of Mine, which is finally coming out this month, which is so exciting. Because I know nothing the, about it. There are so many games that are about war, like Call of Duty and Medal of Honor, and you're always the soldier. And what about the people who live in these places where the war is happening, where their lives are just completely disrupted? Really? And they need to somehow scratch out a living without getting shot. And they're not even combatants. They're just trying to live. And this is a game that tells their story, and you play as them, and you are trying to live in these war-torn areas. These are the majority of people who are affected by war, and their story has never been told in a game, and finally, they're, get, they're getting that opportunity. Yeah, really looking forward to that. I don't know. So that sounds like um, like Papa Eo, um, which I decided not to play because I worked with kids, and it kind of deals with... a. a worked with kids who were frequently abused. I remember, I remember you mentioning that game hit a little yeah, too close to home. Yeah, so I, I, you know, I watched the trailer for it, and I was like, this looks, it looks beautiful. It looks like it has a good story to tell, and it looks like I will be traumatized. And so um, I'm wondering if that, because I, I tend to over-empathize with, with games, and so I'm wondering if that might be a little bit too much for me. So I'll let you play and then let me know how it, how okay. it goes. Because it, it sounds really interesting. And it sounds like one of these stories that we talk, you know, the, that we're talking about, like different perspectives that, that are valuable and need to be explored and told. So that sounds really exciting. Well, my opportunity to feature it on IndieCider is contingent on me being able to interview one of the developers. And this game, I think, is so eagerly anticipated by so many that I might not be on their radar for a podcast. They may be committed elsewhere. So I'm I'm hoping I'll get the opportunity to get their story told, the developers, and at the same time feature this game, which tells a story that so few of us know. Yeah. Neat. Yeah. Uh, It's really, really interesting for me when the goals the mission statements of my indie podcast and the polygamer podcast intersect when i meet someone who could appear on either one this recently happened when i interviewed a gentleman from minority media uh ruben ferris who worked on papo and yo speaking of which and that same company's next game which was spirits of spring which is an ios game about bullying and I talked to this gentleman for about a half an hour, not so much about the game, but just about bullying and how do you hope to help kids who are experiencing this by playing this game? And how does this manifest itself in the game? And what was your experience with bullying that made you want to build this into a game? And that's a topic for Polygamer. That is an issue of equality and diversity in the gaming space, but it was being manifested in an indie game. So I had him on the Indie Cider podcast, but bullying is a topic I want to return to later on in Polygamer and continue building this library of work. That's one of, been one of the surprises for me about Polygamer is I thought I was just doing these discrete episodes where the only really connective tissue was the fact that it was on the same show and I was the same host. But what's happening is I'm starting to notice trends and themes as I talk to all these different people whose lives 
are so different from mine. And I start to see that this, these are not isolated incidences or themes or needs in this community. These are things that are happening to many people and experiences that many people are having. And I'm developing this self-referential body of work where on the most recent episode with Chris Barney talking about sociology, we constantly referred back to the episode about gender-inclusive game design by uh, Sherry Grainer Ray. And you know the fact that we are, are, are citing other episodes of Polygamer is fascinating to me because it means that each episode is laying a foundation for more elaborate discussions. I know that some people who are working in this space get really frustrated or not just frustrated, but exhausted talking about like feminism 101 and equality 101. And I know that Ash Dryden founded AlterConf to take it to the next level and talk about equality 201. And, and that is important and necessary, but I didn't expect that I would be one of the people contributing to that. I thought that given my ignorance and my lack of education in the topics I'm discussing and the lack of diversity in my own background, that I would just be stuck at the one-on-one level. And what I'm slowly realizing is that these episodes are very, very gradually ramping up to Equality 102 mm-hmm. and then Equality 103. And I'm starting to understand more than I knew when I started the show. And I'm becoming less ignorant, which I hope isn't making me a worse host because it's necessary for me to acknowledge that I will never know everything on this topic. And there will always be people who know more than me. And I need to find those people and get them on the show and get them to talk. And I just need to listen. Yeah, I've um, I've noticed that with Less Than or Equal to how, you know, like I started out with this, um, this like, okay, well, there's an issue. What do we do? And then I talked to Ash Dryden and I and and we were you know, just having our conversation. I was like, okay, so step zero in this whole thing is you have to recognize that there's a problem and you have to recognize that other points of view are valid. And she's like, yeah, that's right. So, um, so every episode I kind of build on these, like, how do we make this better? And so like, I've got step zero, recognize that there's an issue. Step one, recognize that other perspectives are valid and so I'm wondering I've been thinking about it lately as I've I'm up to step three or four right now and they're not linear but whatever um, is like how many of these am I going to have like how how long is this list actually going to end up being is it going to be fairly small and self-contained or is it going to start to be like this large nebulous thing because one thing I want to do is give people a starting point Like, if you're that person who's just started to realize that, oh, yeah, hey, maybe, maybe the damsel isn't a damsel and she rescues herself, as Anita Sarkeesian said, Um, you know, okay, so yes, I'm on board with this. Now what? And that's, that's part of what I want to do. And I'm wondering how I'm going to handle that as I evolve my knowledge, Mm -hmm. evolves the people I know. Um, that sphere broadens. So it's going to be interesting. And I think it might even be a challenge to kind of juggle that, you know, trying to keep it basic enough where people can come in. So do I recall that when you were launching less than or equal, you had the same question that I did, which was, should this focus solely on feminism? Or should we expand to other topics? Because that was an issue I struggled with. Um, yeah, so 
I started when I when I conceived of it, it was probably it was about six. I spent about six weeks kind of mulling it over and, and deciding whether I wanted to do it or not. And it was initially because I am a woman and I work in the tech industry and I see things that need to be improved. So let's have a podcast on women in tech. And then I started thinking about it and I was like, well, is that too limiting? Do I need to to broaden that out some or or is it okay? And am I going to get bored? And, you know, there are plenty of women in tech I can talk to, but are they going to want to come on the show because I'm nobody? Like, I'm just cold calling them, hoping that they'll they'll be interested and trust my idea. And um, then I talked to my best friend and she's really into, she's a nurse and she homeschools her kids and she's really into encouraging her two girls to be curious. And, you know, she was like, well, maybe, maybe you do tech and science. And then I started thinking about people like John Scalzi who are in science fiction and, oh, wouldn't that be cool to talk to them? And, you know, seeing some of the things and hearing some of the things that happen in conventions. Well, okay, that needs improvement. So yeah, it was just initially like a women in tech concept. And then I started thinking about, you know, this can be broader than that. And, and I can help, um, and have even more interesting conversations with even more people if I broaden the scope. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's, and I think it's important that you be willing to broaden that sphere. Like I said, this podcast that I host was spun off from a panel I moderated on feminism. And I thought, should I limit my podcast to that topic as well? Because this is what has been so well received at PAX so far. And I thought, that is a topic I may eventually get tired of talking about or will run out of people to talk about or people will be tired of hearing about. And that's not in any way, shape, or form to minimize the importance of that topic. But when I had my PAX panel, I think one of the reasons it was so well-received was because I had men and women of color and white or whatever up there. And many times I've been to panels about women in gaming and it's all white women up there. And, you know, that is a valid perspective, but there, you know, as we've said many times over, there are different perspectives to be heard. And one of the most fascinating exchanges for me during that PAX East panel was when Dwayne DeFore, who was a black man on my panel, said that stereotypes in games exist not just for women, but for other demographics as well. For example, he's tired of the black character always being the tank, which is a stereotype. Mm Mm-hmm. And we had a game developer on that panel who, at the time that this statement was made, she didn't say anything, but privately she was thinking to herself, oh my God, I am working on a game that has a black tank character. I didn't realize that was a thing. I didn't realize I was contributing to the perpetuation of this stereotype. And so she went home to her studio and she fixed this. And it's that sort of, you know, cross-demographic intersectionality that we need to be having. We can't talk about just one issue as if it existed in a silo there are multiple issues at play here that are all bouncing off each other and we need to get people talking to each other and in future episodes of polygamer i'm going to have other people come on the show as the interviewer taking my spot because we need different people talking to each other it can't always be the straight white cisgendered male talking to somebody because that's not much of a dialogue As I've said, I always want to be the one listening, but there are other people who have things to say, 
And sometimes you need to have a discussion, which is what less than or equal is great at. You know, I don't interject myself into my podcast as much as you do yours. And I can hear you growing as a person and I can hear what you're learning and I can hear your developers and your guests and your interview subjects learning as a result of what they're hearing from you and you both are walking away from that. And in a way, I'm kind of more selfish on my podcast because I don't care what my guests get out of it. I just want them to give me everything they have. I want to suck them dry. You're a wraith. Yes. Yes, I am. All right, Ken. So that's what I want for Polygamer. And it's a, it's a very different approach to podcasting. And I'm really glad that we are both out here doing our own things in our own ways because they're, you know, it's a diversity of approaches. Well, and I think that um, I think that we complement each other well. I, I honestly do. I think that um, our perspectives and our approaches are different enough that it's not like, oh gosh, well, which one, which podcast am I going to listen to? Like, I really think that there's room for both of our shows in, you know, in someone's little podcast app thing. Wow, Podcatcher. Yeah, thank you. Yeah. So, yeah, and because we're different, different perspectives, different, different, and I like it, and I like that I, I listen to Polygamer, and I walk away from every episode having learned at least one thing, or having at least one thing to think about, at least, every episode, yeah, and that's great. I like how we spent the last hour and a half just patting each other on the back. That's because we're great. Yeah, yeah. we are. You're great, Aline. You You're... are too, Ken. Aw. Yeah. So, Ken, how can people find you? Uh... Where, <laughs> Ken, where can't people find you? Yeah, yeah. Well, please don't dox me because that would be too easy to find me. Uh, I have an article coming out at computerworld.com, actually, about how to avoid getting doxed. And I hope that isn't uh, exemplary of victim blaming. It's just... There are so many data brokers online that collect your information and make it available to anybody who wants it that this will be an article on how to opt out of those data brokers. So if you want to find me, please don't do that. I would prefer that you go to twitter.com slash gamebits or youtube.com slash gamebits or gamebits.net. If you want to find the Equality and Diversity podcast called Polygamer, that can be found at polygamer.net where you can find links to listen to it on iTunes, Stitcher, or TuneIn. And I also host IndieCider.net, that's I-N-D-I-E-S-I-D-E-R.net, which is something of an unfortunate name because it sounds like a podcast about people who are indecisive. <laughs> uh, but really, I went through about a dozen other names that were all taken. And when you do a Google search for IndieCider, assuming that Google doesn't try to correct the spelling on you, I will be the number one hit because nobody else wanted this name. Aww. So I got that. So IndieCider.net. And then the publishing, online publishing podcast I mentioned is thepubcast.org, T-H-E-P-U-B-C-A-S-T.org. And that updates whenever I darn well feel like it. It doesn't have a weekly or monthly schedule. It's just, can I find somebody who wants to talk to me while my students are out of session? And I think that's enough ways to find me. That's a lot of ways to find you. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I'm so glad you came to Phoenix. I am so honored to have been on Less Center Equal. I have to tell you that I am here for work. And I've learned a lot at this conference that I'm attending for all three days. But all week, I've been looking forward to being on the show. This Yay. has been the highlight. And this is worth the trip to Phoenix. Thank you. Thank you. All right. You can find the show on Twitter, at Less Than or Equal. 
If you have feedback, suggestions for guests, or would like to be a guest, please go to lessthanorequal.com and fill out the contact form. If you have a few minutes, it would be great if you would leave a review on iTunes. Thanks for listening. Until next time, on an internet near you, I'm Aline Sims for Less Than or Equal.